Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As the presidents of China and America hold a sideline chat at the G20 meeting in Japan, we examine a bigger question. What are the odds that a trade war could turn into the shooting kind? And plenty of trends get their start in Silicon Valley. Our correspondent has seen a surging interest there in surrogacy, Fertility startups are starting up, employers are helping to finance it, and techie types are discovering another means of efficient life design. But first... America's Supreme Court handed down two landmark decisions yesterday both with big implications for how voters are represented in government. They also hint at the court's reluctance to get drawn into politics. One case tackled the Trump administration's bid to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Census is under attack! What do we do? Stand up like that! What do we do? Opponents argue that question would suppress responses, particularly from Hispanic households. That would leave those households without representation in voter rolls, in federal funding decisions, and in Congress. The other decision tackled gerrymandering, the practice of cleverly drawing district boundaries so that one party gets more representation in the legislature than it actually has on the ground. It's an old political ploy, but one that in the big data era has been used with increasing sophistication. But who ultimately decides what's fair redistricting and what's gerrymandering? The court seems to think that power lies not with the federal government, but with the states. Chief Justice Roberts wrote that partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions that are beyond the reach of federal courts. Stephen Maisie covers the Supreme Court for The Economist. They have no license to reallocate political power between the two major political parties. So what does this look like in practice? Give me an example of how gerrymandering can impact the electoral process. Well, we have seen the impact of gerrymandering in the past decade. Starting in 2010, gerrymanderers got new tools in the guise of software, which made it much easier to draw lines in ways that roped out populations. You didn't want voting in a, in a district and to rope others in. And we've seen that the results of these extreme partisan gerrymanders include North Carolina and, and Maryland, where you have a relatively balanced state. In in North Carolina, you have a a purple state, which is 50-50 Democrat, Republican, but where of the 13 congressional seats, 10 of those belong to the Republicans and three to the Democrats. So this is the type of thing which has already been going on. And now that the Supreme Court has said, this is something federal courts cannot step into, there seems to be no constitutional limit on state legislatures deciding to do their best to 
rig maps in ways that make it easy for them to win more and more elections and to entrench their power cycle after cycle. And what kind of impact do you think that could have on on future elections when, when there are so many cases indicating that they have an effect on elections? Well, this really pulls out all the stops. State legislators now will be emboldened to do their very best to draw lines that entrench the power of their party without worry that the federal courts will step in and say, no, that violates the Constitution. Now, that was just one of yesterday's rulings. What about the other decision on whether to add a a question about citizenship to the census? What did Chief Justice Roberts say about that? Roberts says that Wilbur Ross, who is the person in the government who is in charge of, of adding the citizenship question, offered mere pretexts for the reason why the question should be added. The argument he gave was, well, we need citizenship data so we can enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And Roberts kind of saw through that ruse. He called it contrived. And he said, this does not appear to be the genuine rationale that the government had in mind when they added that question. So without striking down the question and saying that the Trump administration cannot ask a question about citizenship on the 2020 census, the case goes back to the lower court and back to the agency, and it's up to the Census Bureau to provide a new way of thinking about why the citizenship question is necessary that could pass muster, and that is that it needs to have some reasonable backing. But let's suppose that everything goes the government's way on this and the question ends up on the census. The implications there would be huge. The implications are pretty well known. Everybody in the case has stipulated to the effect. Hispanic households receiving the survey questionnaire will be less likely to fill it out and send it back. And the result of that is that certain states, mostly blue states, although not all, will have an undercount of the population in their borders. And fewer people means fewer seats in Congress, fewer electoral votes for the next presidential elections, and fewer federal dollars. And this is for the next decade, until 2030. The results of the 2020 census will dictate a lot about the contour of American democracy and who holds power and who has a better chance of getting people elected. Is there anything that we can or should draw from these these two decisions kind of taken together, one in which they've kind of passed on the question altogether and, and one that they've passed it back? Yes, I think Chief Justice Roberts is the main player here. He's the median justice on the court. He has four justices to his left, four to his right. And he doesn't like Americans looking at the court in this really ideological partisan way. So in the gerrymandering case he decided that he didn't want to be the court of last resort for countless appeals in which litigants would say, we have a partisan gerrymander here. Please, Supreme Court, help us out. He views the decisions in those future cases to be ones that will make Americans look at the court more as a political institution than one that's just calling balls and strikes, as Roberts put it when he was before the Senate in 2005. With the census case, I think he felt the pressure of so many commentators and overwhelming evidence that the Trump administration really was not telling the truth when it explained in court why it was adding this question. And to simply defer to the Trump administration again 
after doing it with the Muslim ban case last year, would really make the Supreme Court look like the minion of the executive branch. And there's nothing that Chief Justice Roberts wants less. So I think with both of these decisions, Roberts is saying, here's what the role of the court is, and we are not going to reach too far into political questions. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. It was, it was great to be with you, Jason. Graham Allison is a Harvard professor who has taken a particular interest in managing the relationship between China and the United States. James Miles, our China editor, has been speaking to one of those warning that the world's top economies are heading for war. His worry being that the rise of China will challenge the supremacy of America and could lead ultimately to conflict. He came into The Economist and spoke to some of our editors. Well, unfortunately, I think things will get worse before they get worse. The rising China is genuinely threatening to displace a ruling U.S. When that happens, generally, alarm bells should sound extreme danger ahead, frequently even war, a deadly war. Well, he's particularly well known for something called the Thucydides Trap, Now, what he means by this is the writings of the 5th century BC Athenian historian Thucydides, who talked about the rise of Athens' power and how Sparta's response to that led ultimately to war between Athens and Sparta. In this dynamic, the rising power is feeling bigger and stronger. The ruling power is feeling threatened as the rising power is encroaching on its territory. What happens is that both are susceptible to misunderstandings and misperceptions. 
which when then triggered by some extraneous third-party action or provocation, or even an accident, leads to a vicious cycle of actions and reactions that drag them both to war. Think of the assassination of the Archduke in 1914, that uh, seemed extraneous in London when it happened, but six weeks later had dragged all of Europe into a deadly war. So the Thucydides trap is used as a way of referring to the rise now of China and how America's response to that. In other words, its efforts to contain China, to stop it becoming the paramount power globally, might lead to conflict between those two countries. So what about this notion that it could be a, a third party who, who triggers the conflict? What kind of trigger do you think that could be in, in this case? So the risk is that particular areas in Asia might become the sources of conflict. Now, that could involve something on the Korean peninsula, a meltdown in the north that draws in American forces from the south, Chinese forces from the north, uh, the two interacting and, and disagreeing with how to resolve the situation, and that perhaps escalating into a wider conflict. The biggest potential bone of contention in that area is over Taiwan. And it's that threat in Taiwan that worries Professor Allison the most. U.S. actions have been emboldening Taiwan to take a stronger action towards more independence. And that's only exacerbated as they watch what's happening in Hong Kong and remember why they don't want to be part of mainland China. And as Xi Jinping has talked about, an impatience in returning this errant province, as he thinks of it, to mainland rule. Uh, so in these circumstances, you could imagine movements towards independence, which could lead China to act militarily to coerce those movements, and which then would either lead the U.S. to support or fail to support, and one thing could lead to another, and God forbid, a war. I mean, most of the talk of potential conflict at the moment seems to be surrounding Iran. How much do you think that that, that tension has an influence on, on the relations between the U.S. and China? Well, clearly, it's one of the, the many bones of contention between America and China. The Americans worry that China has a cozy relationship with Iran, has great interests in its energy resources, and far less of an interest uh, than America has in containing Iran. But I don't see that... Uh, as the kind of tension that would lead America and China into any kind of armed conflict uh, with one another. But I think what underlies the, the tensions that now prevail between these two countries is far more about bigger questions, perceptions uh, of each other's power, rather than the handling of specific issues such as Iran. Professor Allison talks about this in the context of a kind of inevitability, right? That, that it is just a matter of time then before some sort of conflict will, will break out. What, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think uh, given uh, the potential damage caused by any conflict, any shooting match between the two countries, um, I think the likelihood of, of uh, an escalation to that level remains pretty small, one of the biggest dangers is that China is engaged in a massive, rapid military buildup. Uh, and the kind of change of perception that might cause in China of its own capability, its ability to actually use this kit effectively against the world's 
strongest armed forces, namely America. It's that that uh, that I think is most worrisome, a, a miscalculation on China's part that might change what we have long thought of as being a relatively stable form of competition into something much more unpredictable. And, you know, a lot of this depends on how we analyze uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the degree of his control over the armed forces, if tensions do rise dramatically between China and America. We just don't know how he would respond in such a stressful situation. And uh, the risk, I think, given all this uh, advanced military equipment, given uh, the nationalist rhetoric of Xi Jinping himself, the risk that this might lead to something more violent, I think, um, is, is not to be discounted. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. While British headlines are dominated by the race for conservative leader and thus prime minister, the opposition Labour Party is deeply divided over how to resolve the Brexit stalemate. John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, speaks to my colleague Anne McElvoy on this week's episode of The Economist Asks. We're opposed to a no deal. Um, Jeremy's made it clear any deal or a no deal needs to go back to the people for a public vote. Of course, we want a general election if we can, but a public vote in this instance means a referendum. So then the other issue to be decided is what, uh, because you always get the next question, if you're having a public vote, what's your attitude? What's your position on all of this? Exactly. So that's the next stage of the debate and that's the consultation that's going on. I've said publicly what my personal position is, is that if there's another referendum, I've got to be honest with people, I'd vote for Remain and I'd campaign for Remain. Now, but the, we've got to arrive at a party position on that that we can adhere to. And that's Do you think discussion. Jeremy Corbyn would vote for Remain in another referendum in all circumstances? Would Jeremy Corbyn I can't vote speak for him because he's in a, in a position now where he's trying to make... Is he sure, your leader? Yes, I know, but he's, he has to speak for himself. And he, what he's trying to do is bring people together. To hear more, subscribe to The Economist Asks on your podcast app. Silicon Valley types are always trying to optimize their lives, whether that's reconnecting with friends, working out, or getting from A to B by scooter. Now they're taking their entrepreneurial zeal and applying it to one of life's most important events, giving birth. I came across this story in conversation with friends in the Bay Area. The Economist's Alexandra Sewich-Bass writes a column on Silicon Valley culture for 1843, our sister lifestyle magazine. People who I thought would never think about surrogacy, who are in their early 30s, mentioned it as an option if they had trouble having a child. And then one of my good friends in the Bay Area is expecting a child by surrogate in late September. And so that got me thinking, is this a wider phenomenon in the Bay Area? And so what did you find? Is it, is it as common as those two data points would suggest? So surrogacy is fairly uncommon still, but it's growing in acceptance. So in 2015, about 3% of babies conceived through IVF were born by surrogate. But I spoke to Tammy Sun, who runs a fertility startup, which is actually now a thing in the Bay Area. And requests for surrogacy have risen 500% in the last year, according to Tammy. So roughly a third of the couples who look to surrogacy are gay men, according to a fertility journey coach. 
60% are heterosexual couples who have struggled with infertility and 10% are a smattering of other people who don't have necessarily a partner or a typical path to having a family but are interested in creating a family on their own. So why, why Silicon Valley then? Why, why is it so prevalent there? There's a few reasons why surrogacy is is becoming more common and more acceptable to talk about in the Bay Area. One is that surrogacy is extremely expensive. So it is thriving not just in the Bay Area, but other wealthy cities like New York or even Dallas, where people can afford it. The costs can come to around $150,000 for medical bills and the surrogate's compensation. So it's really only something that people who save a lot or can afford to spend on on surrogacy can do. And of course, tech firms pay well, but they've also started to subsidize surrogacy services. And I find that to be a really interesting trend. They see it as in their interest for their employees to be able to pursue having families sometimes later than one might normally do. And so Facebook reimburses employees, for example, $20,000 for surrogacy costs. Other companies do the same. And it really boosts employees' loyalty in a competitive market. So is it is it just about the money then? It's not. So there, there are a couple other reasons why people would turn to surrogacy. One is culture. The gay culture in the Bay Area, and more generally, has helped normalize it. The culture in the Bay Area is also really entrepreneurial. So people are willing to go off script and try new things to get what they want. And there's this interesting culture of life design where people are willing to hack things and solutions that they think would make life easier. You see this with the rise of errand runners, different tracking apps, fitness apps. This is carrying it to an extreme, of course, that you can plan when to have a child rather than hope. And we see this with some of the apps that track fertility, but surrogacy is taking this to a more logical extreme. And then there's, of course, a legal reason. Many states don't recognize and allow for compensated surrogacy services and agreements. California does. New York, interestingly, does not. And so people come to California to find surrogates. And that's part of why we've seen a rise in the Bay Area. And you think that rise in the Bay Area then portends a rise elsewhere, that this this trend will continue? That's the key question. I think it will continue from a very small base today to increase. I don't know that it will ever be the norm. And anyone who's read Margaret Atwood's A Handmaid's Tale or seen the Hulu show probably still has very strong reactions and biases against it. And I've had hugely impassioned debates with friends about surrogacy. There's people who think that it is representation of society's inequality because it's the wealthy who can afford forward to do this. And the surrogates are often poor and less educated women. So it reinforces inequality in society. There's also the question of why not just adopt? Why pursue this very expensive, difficult path to have your own child when there's so many children who need a home? But my view is that what people talk about in the Bay Area is likely to be an indication of broader social and cultural trends. The Bay Area tends to be five to 10 years in advance of the rest of America, if not more. So even if it doesn't go mainstream, it's a topic that's worth paying attention to. Alexander, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jason.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.